APU. American Public University is proud to present Intellectable. Welcome to the podcast, Intellectable. I'm your host, Dr. Gary Deal. Today, we're talking about the narcissism of small differences. My guest today is Dr. Bjorn Mercer. Bjorn is a program director in the School of Arts and Humanities. Bjorn, welcome to Intellectable, and thank you for being our guest today. Thanks, Gary. It's an honor being here to be on your podcast, and I'm, I'm excited about the conversation. Likewise, I appreciate it. One of my first guest appearances was on your podcast, so I'm, I'm happy to return the favor and, and reciprocate. Thanks again for being here. I'll admit to our listeners that you were the first to introduce me to this topic, and I found it rather fascinating one, and we've since written an article together about it and talked about it a little bit, but I wanted to really dive in to get to the, the heart of this issue. I guess to get us started, can you explain to our listeners what the narcissism of small differences is and where it originated? Sure. No, I'm happy to. So first thing I want to say is I'm not an expert at any of this, not a trained psychologist, since this term technically originates with Freud. But I was introduced to it when I was watching actually a YouTube channel. And so the YouTube channel is called Religion for Breakfast. And Andrew Henry, who studies religion, was talking about what did the Gnostic Christians believe? So he's talking about the Gnostic Christians 18 centuries ago. So I think with most people who say study Christianity, they've heard of Gnostics. But what do we know about Gnostics besides they were a heretical sect? But then even then, what does it mean to be heretical? So one thing that Andrew Henry stated was heresy is viewed as dangerous or invited exile precisely because it involves outsiders trying to become insiders or insiders that other insiders were trying to push out. This infighting exemplifies a phenomenon called the narcissism of small differences, which he describes as an unnecessarily complicated term. That means when closely related communities, whether religious, ethnic, or political, engage in near-constant warfare, it's because their small differences are more threatening than some distant foe. And really the latter part of that is the really important part. And when he's talking about Christians and Gnostics, you know, especially when you're talking about something 18 centuries ago, how can you even wrap yourself around something even 100 years ago? or even 200 years ago, it's extremely difficult. And so when we think about something that is so far back in say, human history, what could their differences possibly be? The Gnostics still believed in Jesus. They still believed in God, but there were certain things that were so, the mainline Christianity at the time, felt like they were heretical that they had to push them out. Typically in the past, when somebody is a heretic, that means that say violence can be done upon them. And so that really made me think, what is that term, the narcissism of small differences? Because logically, it seems extremely common sense. The small little differences can really create intense infighting. And an easy way to think about that is with family. Uh, if you, you know, our listeners have a brother or a sister or aunts and uncles, which we all do, how often do we fight with them? Do we have disagreements? Oftentimes over the smallest things that honestly don't matter. And that's really how I view this, the narcissism of small differences, is that when people whom are similar fight over things that really, really don't matter. And we'll get more into that in a second, especially when you talk about the evolutionary roots of the phenomena, which is very fascinating. To give a little background on its origin, so there is an anthropological origin, which I'm not familiar with, I have to apologize. But Freud talked about it in his Civilization and Discontents, his book from 1930. 
Now, this book, Ladder, the latter part of Freud's life, I would describe it as a slog. It is a tough read, honestly, and which is a tough read for most of Freud. And I've talked to people who speak German, and they say even in German, Freud is a tough read. <laughs> so when you read it in English, it's still a tough read. And so in The Civilization and Its Discontent, Freud really goes over ideas and concepts, including religion. He's really talking about trying to find happiness in a cruel world. And he really has a prolonged discussion of sex, aggression, and violence. Sounds pretty Freudian, to use the term. And really, the book is overall pretty pessimistic that civilization is driven by aggression, which, you know, don't really disagree with. And this is about three years after a book called The Future of an Illusion, in which Freud really talks about religion as an illusion. I guess you can say he was, for the most part, an atheist and somewhat discounted religion. And so as you're reading Civilization and its discontent, you really don't get to the narcissism of small differences until about on page 33. And the quote from Freud is, I once discussed the phenomenon that it is precisely communities with adjoining territories and related to each other in other ways as well, who are engaged in constant feuds and in ridiculing each other, like the Spaniards and the Portuguese, for instance, the North Germans and the South Germans, the English and the Scots, and so on. I give this phenomenon the name, the narcissism of minor differences, a name which does not do much to explain it. Since then, it's been changed to the narcissism of small differences. And so it really makes you think, why do people fight? That's a consistent theme in my own life and my own studies. In pretty much everything I've studied, I've oftentimes thought, why do people fight? Why can't people just get along? And it's something that has been always confusing for me because I don't get it. I really don't. And if people just go to the table and just have a conversation, you could probably resolve 90% of all conflicts with 10% of conflicts potentially being so far away that some other means have to be figured out for the conflict to be resolved. Now, is that a good overview, <laughs> Gary? Yeah, uh, absolutely. I think that summarizes the main points. And you have me thinking about Rodney King's father. Can we all just get along? <laughs> Would that we could. But uh, yeah, it's, it's an interesting concept. And I'm, I'm really glad that you introduced me to it because it it got me thinking about the way that we have a natural propensity for aggression or hostility toward others. And I thought, well, this might have a silver lining in the sense that it might unite us against some common enemy in, in different contexts. And I found myself thinking back to 9-11, and I was a teenager at the time. And I, I know we're going to get into the, the politics of the U.S. toward the end of this. And, and um, there was political divisiveness at the time, not nearly what it is today. I think it's it's exploded for reasons that I can't quite articulate, at least not in a comprehensive way. But um, there was a unity after that moment. And I distinctly remember, you know, everyone putting aside their blue signs and their red signs and uniting around the cause of, you know, American patriotism and the values that our country stood for. And it was, I believe, a certain sense of the enemy of my enemy as my friend. You know, this idea that we had an external threat that took greater precedence or priority over our subtle differences between ourselves here in the country. But yet I reflect then and try to reconcile that with what's happening today. And, and again, the political division, I think, has, has grown considerably since then. And we face a threat, but it's different now. And I, I wonder if it's because it's not personified in the sense that we are now you know, recording this in October of 2020. We are in month 
nine, I guess, of the U.S.'s exposure to the COVID pandemic. And um, that seems to have done nothing really to unite the country, at least the conservative and progressive wings of our political factions around this idea that, you know, we need to rally together for the better of our, our nation. And it's interesting to me that that sort of juxtaposition between what happened 20 years ago and us rallying around a cause against, you could argue, a man in Osama bin Laden. You could argue a group in terms of the terrorist extreme factions in the Middle East. You could argue a cause. But today we have this biological threat, and that does not seem to have the same effect on our ability to see past these subtle differences and move together in lockstep. No, I completely agree. And, you know, COVID is interesting because it also requires people to recognize and acknowledge the scientific realities of the virus. And for some people, health concerns, if they can't see it, they don't believe it. And so for a certain percentage of people, they just won't believe that there's a problem because maybe in their lives, nobody has COVID. And for some smaller communities, very few people, or it's just not as rampant, or, well, I knew somebody and it was pretty mild. You know, and so it's very easy to discount something if it's not directly influencing you. And then, you know, part of the reason I started the series, The Narcissism of Small Differences, which you contributed to, so thank you so much, was exactly leading up to the 2020 election and watching the Democrats and the Republicans constantly fighting. And it's something that I'll not say Trump didn't invent it. It's been building for years. If you remember during W, everything W did, according to CNN and MSNBC, was pretty terrible. Mm -hmm. And then when Obama came to office, I mean, Obama was a fascist. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you watched Fox at the time and you're like, you know, Obama's going to do all these things. And... It's one of those things that as an adult, I really started being disappointed in my fellow adults and my elders. And I say that with a heavy heart because our elders are the ones who are supposed to be wise and guide us. And then you realize that a lot of people out there who have power are as stupid as we are. And I use that term stupid directed back at me because I am not brilliant. (laughs) I'm not a genius. I'm just a normal person. But then people who get power and have influence are actually just normal people too, such as what's going on with COVID, where you have someone, for example, Dr. Fauci, a brilliant guy, years and years of good, solid work. And he makes one mistake. I put that in a quote, like with the masks thing at the beginning of the COVID thing. And then people are always pointing back to that. Well, he made a mistake. Why should we trust him? How many mistakes did you make today? And that's the tough thing when you're doing public policy. Sometimes when you make a mistake, it costs people's lives. And then you have to try to adjust. And so really with the narcissism of small differences, and you were talking about 9-11, I'll go back even further with uh, the Cold War. There's nothing that brought Americans together more than those darn commies. And... The red threat, like all history, it's complicated. I keep on, whenever I talk about anything, you know, everything is complicated. After World War II and the Red Scare and McCarthyism was not a good thing. But the one thing that communism per se did is it brought together many aspects of American culture and united them. Now, was that a positive Cold War? That sounds funny because really no wars are positive. 
No. I mean, it was absolutely horrible. There are so many secondary conflicts that killed millions of people because of the conflict between communism and capitalism that none of that was worth it. So, and can you apply the narcissism of small differences to capitalism and communism? I don't know. They seem pretty polar opposites, but at the same time, are they? So I'm digressing. <laughs> no, I, I think these are valid points. And um, it's interesting you were describing how, you know, if you're not affected personally by something that it may not have the same impact and, and change your life in the same way. And as I was reflecting on that in 9-11, I lost an uncle who was at the top of one of the, the World Trade Center towers at the time. In COVID, at least thus far, I've not lost any immediate family members and or friends. I've known people who have lost others, but hasn't had nearly the same sort of intimate impact on my life. But we are actually recording this on the day that um, the news came out this morning that President Trump and his wife have both tested positive for coronavirus. So it caused me to pause and think if that will change anything, but I maybe I'm cynical. I, I have zero faith that that will make any difference at all. But uh, it is interesting that, you know, it, it seems that in order to unite, we have to share and, and unite around a disdain for some other third party extrinsic to us that we can't find an intrinsic way to bond and, and find communal relations or, or, or commonality that it, you know, in the sense of the Cold War that you described, it was necessary for us to rally around our mutual hostility toward the Soviets in order to bond together as Americans. And I think there was a a sense of egocentrism and an idolatry around U.S. values that have fallen short of their ambitions in recent years and, and people are beginning to realize as they reflect upon uh, at least recent American history. And I mean, you can always go back to uh, the founding fathers who were slaveholders and conveniently left out the fact that, you know, the 13th Amendment wasn't part of the original Constitution, despite the fact that people hold the document up as this uh, bastion of, of perfect values. And then you look at Vietnam and you look at, you know, other ways in which we've interfered in global affairs that probably were not in the interest of altruism. But it, it does make me wonder and not to be a pessimist either, but you know, whether it's possible to unite people around something other than an external threat. I don't know. I would describe myself as an optimistic nihilist. <laughs> <laughs> I always think things will get better. With that said, they don't always. And it's one of those realities that I think a young Bjorn came to realize that the world is tough and complicated and ugly. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's disgusting and violent and murderous, as I'm describing all these horrible terms. <laughs> but overall, things kind of do go okay. Sometimes it takes a generation, though. And that's a very tough thing to look at. And America for the most part, has lived in a pretty good situation for a long time. Now, of course, like you were saying, there's a lot of very difficult history. There's still a lot that has to be done, say, with uh, minority representation and income inequality and equality. And there's just too much to talk about, you know, when it comes to all these other things that need to be addressed. The reason for the original series about the narcissism and small difference is really just to highlight the fact that Although it seems like we're so divided today, Democrats and Republicans are divided, we're really not. We still believe in the Constitution. I would say my own thing. We still follow a lot of the excellent points from the Federalist Papers. Now, the Federalist Papers, I always like to say this, that's not a Republican thing. That's an American thing. You know, even if you don't know anything about Hamilton besides, you know, the Broadway. The play. <laughs> 
his writings, his writings in the Federalist Papers are amazing. And what they talk about in 1780s is still exactly applicable today. And that's one of the things about history that I love. Nothing changes. Absolutely nothing changes. Whatever we are dealing with today, Caesar dealt with. Mm. Or not even Caesar, the soldier that worked for Caesar. Because who cares about Caesar? <laughs> Those people all had to deal with the same thing. And so Americans, even though our politics seems fractured, I would push back on that and say, is it fractured in your hometown, in your locality? When you talk to your neighbors, do you have a CNN Fox fight where everybody's yelling at each other and talking over? No, I've never encountered that with my neighbors. And maybe it's because we're polite. We don't talk too much about politics, but I do talk politics. I talk religion with people. And 9.5 times out of 10, we, we get along. I think the media deserves a, a healthy amount of blame for the exacerbation of this because of the factions that have divided the major news networks politically. And, and both sides are to blame. I and mean, we could bicker about who's worse. But at the end of the day, there's a little bit of spin in everything. And um, some of that may be inadvertent. Some of that may be difficult to avoid. It may be a product of bias that people don't even realize that they have. But you have to realize that a fair portion of it is a product of intentional engineering of media, of consumption of information that is spun one way or another based on political allegiances. And there seems to be just total disregard among these networks that are exclusively focused on their ratings to offer truth, to offer unbiased information. And so there's complete mistrust on both sides. And to your point earlier, you know, I do my very best. I'm, I'm certainly as susceptible to social pressures and, and the desire to be polite as anybody else. But I do my best as well to try to engage people in polite conversation, respectful conversation, and, and politically or specifically among people with whom I disagree. But to your point, you were mentioning, you know, we don't have these kinds of fights with our neighbors and friends and family, sometimes with family, I suppose, but particularly with people we don't have very close relationships with for fear of offense or hostility and creating a, a bad reputation for oneself. And I think we've we've lost something in that because we now fear talking about difficult subjects and having difficult conversations for fear of of offending someone rather than seeking out opportunities and ways of having difficult conversations respectfully where we can sit down at the table and share different ideas and disagree, but then get up from the table and shake hands and remain friends. And I fear that that aspect of a democratic society that we've lost now, we, we retreat to our camps, we don't talk to each other, we just throw stones over the walls, is an omen, you know, for the future that, that worries me substantially. And I completely agree. And, you know, I guess something we should have talked about was really what is narcissism? <laughs> so here's a quick, although I tell my students don't use Wikipedia <laughs> for <laughs> sources in their papers. I love Wikipedia. It's truly amazing. It's an amazing feature that is crowdsourced and considering it's correct most of the time. But academically, don't use it. So narcissism is the pursuit of gratification from vanity or egotistic admiration of one's idealized self-image and attributes. And so it's really looking at oneself. So the narcissism of looking at oneself. And so again, when we look at the narcissism of small differences, you're so consumed with yourself or your group that you will not listen to others. And, you know, the presidential debates. So we just had the debate, which as history will go on, will probably be described as probably one of the worst debates ever, if not the worst debate ever. Indeed. And it's one of those things when you have a narcissist 
debating, there's no debate. And you are a debater. So a debate isn't always about changing or changing the other person's opinion, but it's about talking about something in a logical and hopefully articulate and civil manner, I'm assuming. Civility has to be there in a debate or else you're just shouting at each other. And that's what we saw, people just shouting at each other. And all that does is it entrenches two sides of the political spectrum with everybody in the middle just being turned off. And as we go to the 2020 uh, presidential elections, and I always get so tired of people saying, oh, the decline of the American enter description here. People say empire, although you should never describe us as an empire because that's not exceptional. When we talk about American exceptionalism, being an empire is not exceptional. There's been empires that have risen and fallen throughout history and all they do, empires only fall. And so when you really look at narcissism, you have to go beyond the self. And it's not that you like don't care about yourself and you're only caring about others. That's unrealistic also. But when you only think that you're correct in whatever culture you grew up in or whatever environment you grew up in, and that's what's so confusing about the current politics. And I say current politics because it's mainly just, as we were talking about, the media outlets. You know, Fox on one side and CNN and MSNBC on the other side only have to care about up to 10 million people each that are diehard viewers. And if you think if Fox has about 10 million, MSNBC and CBS have about 10 million, that's 20 million Americans. 20 million Americans are guiding the viewership of a country of 300 and how big are we? 40 million? Yeah, something like that at this point. When you look at the viewership of the major networks, it's laughably small. Yeah, I was reading, I think earlier this week, that Joe Rogan's podcast is a wider viewership than most of the major news networks at this point, that that form of media is changing drastically. And he sort of spurred this new movement around long-form conversation, which I absolutely applaud. I don't necessarily agree with everything Rogan has to say, but I do enjoy his inquisitive nature and his seeking to understand and his willingness to take the time to have the difficult conversations that are longer than a soundbite on a major news network will allow. And they bring a pundit on and they said, okay, Bjorn, you have 30 seconds. Please describe the state of political affairs in the United States. And then we have to cut to a commercial break. And it's like, you're not going to get at the root of what you're looking for there. And I think the other piece of this is is a, a feeding of a confirmation bias where you mentioned debates earlier. And I think the spirit behind a debate is a seeking to understand and particularly seeking to understand a point of view that you might not agree with prior. Uh, so if you disagree with me on an issue, my aim ought to be as an interested, inquisitive person and a participant in a democratic society that I share with you to understand your point of view and to try to figure out where the daylight is between us and how we might close that gap one way or another, whether that's meeting in the middle or one of us persuading the other on a, on a point or just agreeing to disagree, which is okay too. But there's a comedian, Bill Burr, who I enjoy his stand up and he has a bit that he talks about. Everybody today just goes to imright.com and, you know, gets fed the daily dose of don't worry about what the other side has to say. They're crazy. They're lunatics. You're right. Just keep on doing what you're doing. Uh, don't seek to understand. And I think that that's a really big part of the problem after the presidential debates that you were describing earlier. I was in the car with my father on a trip across town and we were discussing what an absolute 
circus that was. And I have to give him a lot of credit. I'm very proud of him because he's far more conservative than I am as a product of a very different baby born generation. That's to be expected to a certain extent, although, you know, no generation is a monolith. But um, he remarked to me that this is really astonishing and, and shameful in the sense that this is our representation on the world stage and this is the very best we can do as you know what what once was sort of the bastion of stability and leadership among the free world we appear to be and and in some senses i would say you know appearances are telling here a destabilized you know nation that is just shaking at the foundation as we try to figure out which direction we're heading in and we can't agree on virtually anything yeah you know and that's again going back to what brings us together versus pushes us apart. And it seems like right now, as we go towards the 2020 election, what pushes us apart are really on the fringes. I saw an interview, a brief interview with Michelle Bachman, where she was saying, if Biden gets elected, the Marxist takeover is gonna happen. They're gonna do this, they're gonna do that. And it's like, I don't even know what to say. What are you talking about? And I would have to ask like someone like that who I'm assuming is very much a supporter of capitalism. What do you think capitalism does? Like, what is your view of capitalism? What is your view of freedom? And is everything Soviet-style communism in your head? Because different aspects of our country, and especially different aspects of different industries, are already socialist. So if you're rich, pretty much everything's fine. But if you're rich, everything's fine everywhere. It doesn't matter. You know, with healthcare. Why wouldn't you want to have socialized medicine? Of course, then it's like, well, then it's going to be terrible and there's going to be weights and Canada's terrible and all this, all these different things. And it's like, yeah, but the problem is that everybody who makes the decisions, they're all rich. They're all our congressional leaders who are all rich. And of course, I'm generalizing. They're not all rich. But do they really, have they had to go and have a baby <laughs> in which for a year you constantly get bills? I can't tell you how many bills we got with good insurance a year after we had our first and second child, not knowing how much we'd have to pay. When we were in the hospital, like when we were having our second baby, at that time I kind of knew what I was doing. I was like, how much is this gonna cost? And they're like, I don't know. We have to bill your insurance company. And then they send something. And I'm like, how does that make any sense? None of this makes sense. With COVID, I would at least hope with COVID, that would have at least shocked people into the need for some sort of better healthcare system. But no, if you think you have COVID, especially at the beginning, oh, well, I don't know if I have to go get a test. Um, I don't know where to get a test. I might have to pay for it. I'm not gonna go get a test. And I can't lose my job. I have to go work. So how many potential cases of COVID could have been stopped if we had universal healthcare in which people just went and got a test? Oh, they don't have it. I'm going to work. Oh, I do have it, self-quarantine. Versus so many people not knowing, not wanting to, you know, even our family, which is okay, and I'll say privileged to a point, we are hesitant to go to the doctor sometimes because it's like, well, how much is this gonna cost us even with good insurance? Right. Yeah, I think there's a critical component there of reasoning and argument skills that are missing among the general public. And, and maybe it's not so much a fault of their own as it is the society that that raised them in the fact that you know we have classes in k through 12 on all manner of different disciplines and interests and hobbies but we don't really teach people how to think critically about things you know you will always have town criers like the michelle bachman example of you know lunatics who are willing to shout from the rooftops that the sky is falling and 
just blasphemously misrepresenting arguments from people that, you know, never occurred. And um, we know this as a, as a debater, you know, you learn certain skills and you understand uh, fallacious arguments for what they are, you know, for one example. And so that's a classic example of something called a straw man attack. You know, you, you mischaracterize the other person's views as something bastardly and then you just beat that up and, until the audience is convinced that you've won the argument when really you're fighting something that doesn't exist because there's nothing at least by any reasonable interpretation of the the Biden platform. And again, I'm, I'm not here to advocate or stump for Biden. I'm just stating that as it pertains to a Marxist socialist revolution, we're talking about a, a platform that is strikingly similar to the Obama administration's platform. And, and that should be no surprise to anybody else. And we were not a Marxist socialist country at that time, nor would we be if we have a President Biden in the future. So there's plenty to criticize and, and straw man attacks occur on both sides. But it's important, I think, that people are intellectually honest about the arguments that they're making. And you will always have people who are dishonest, but the ability among a public to recognize dishonest arguments when they hear them, I think is lacking. And that's part of the problem that we have today. Yeah. And again, as we're talking about going to the 2020 election and it's such right for discussion. So the narcissism of small differences, and really, again, what are our differences? And since we were talking about healthcare, I would say the one thing that is oftentimes left out for some reason is what is ethical? Now, Ethical and ethics are extremely gray. They change with every generation. But if you're a capitalist, you want to make money. That's fine. Make money. Do you also want millions of people who are going to tax the healthcare system, which they can't pay for, which then the government has to pay for anyways, in which it's, it's pretty much government supported anyways. So there's all these different things that say with Republicans and Democrats, and I remember having conversations with my mom. And she was talking about Republicans and those darn Republicans about some sort of tax or something. And I was like, you know, they just view taxation a little different than Democrats and Republicans. And I'm not talking about the far, far right or the far, far left. I'm talking about your normal, average Democrat and Republican. And they're not that different, especially today. Democrats are pretty corporate. Republicans are pretty corporate. And so a lot of things really go to protecting corporations, which is also a different problem. We've been speaking with Dr. Bjorn Morsher on Sigmund Freud's Narcissism of Small Differences. And we'll be back after a short break. At American Public University, we believe that higher education can unlock higher purpose. So we offer 200 modern programs for those who want to make a difference. And we believe education must adapt to students' needs. That's why we've made it accessible through online classes and flexible with monthly program starts. American Public University, within reach, without limits. Learn more at AmericanPublicU.com. And we're back. Today we're speaking with Dr. Bjorn Mercer about Sigmund Freud's Narcissism of Small Differences. Did you want to talk about the evolutionary roots of the phenomena? Yeah, I was just going to mention, I know we glossed over that briefly earlier, but I think this phenomena extends far beyond the ramifications of our political system and the election that's coming up, because this was the avenue that I decided to pursue on the topic when you had approached me with it. And, and I think as I began pondering it and, and why, why are we predisposed for this was the question that I asked myself. And what I arrived at, at least, you know, my working theory on this is that, and we wrote about this in an article together, is, is the idea that every human being alive today is a descendant 
of a survivor of our entire line of ancestry. We've made it to this point because every member of our lineage, our great great grandfather and our great 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 grandfather and so on and so forth going back hundreds and thousands of generations survived long enough to be able to procreate and pass on the genes that ultimately are responsible for us existing in the first place and if that is true then you know you begin with a gene pool that is diverse and then the environment begins to hone that gene pool under obviously the postulates and theories of natural selection and darwin's work you know, the, the environment shapes the organisms that live within it based on the needs. And, you know, what we described together in our interview article was it's not hard to imagine this, a situation where, you know, looking back thousands of years, millions of years, your ancestry, the organisms that would eventually give rise to you through the generations would be faced with all manner of threats in the external environment. But you have to remember that for most of human history, both the recorded part and prior to that, every day was sort of a crapshoot. You didn't really know what you'd be faced with um, in terms of disease or in terms of external threats, again, whether it's a bear or anything else that could eat you or, or hurt you, you know, a rattlesnake or what have you, you know, something that could poison you and, and spell the end of your, your story. And so those humans that were not properly cautious and wary of the unknown in a certain respect of things unfamiliar to them. So we describe in our article together, you know, a scenario where you can imagine a caveman of sorts or some early ancestor sitting in the bush, you know, eating berries or something, just sitting around the fire. And there's a, there's a noise nearby in the brush. And there's a certain recipe of human being that would be more curious about that or less concerned with it than those who would be cautious and wary and even paranoid, you could argue to a certain extent. And those human beings that didn't use enough caution didn't make it, right? I mean, you just, you can imagine that scenario where if you were not sufficiently scared uh, about the environment around you so as to avoid danger, you were victim to something that ate you or killed you. And that was the end of the story of your genes. But those that survived were those that had an abundance of caution, that were wary about everything and treated anything unknown or slightly different or unfamiliar as hostile for the sake of safety. And so all to the good, to the extent that it, you know, led us to where we are today, that you and I are privileged enough to be here to have this conversation. But we are, in fact, you know, in a genetic sense, the product of those people who survived. And so when I think about that, I think about the fact that we have to, to a certain extent, be predisposed for a certain wariness and abundance of caution and maybe even a paranoia toward things that are unfamiliar. And so when I look at the modern world today and I see this narcissism of small difference play out in our lives, I'm really not terribly surprised because I think that that was sort of written into the cards that whoever made it this far would have to be that way to a certain extent. Exactly. In the same respect, you know, as we go towards the 2020 election and really thinking of the narcissism of small differences, besides what you might see on Twitter where somebody says, get rid of all police. Most people don't want to get rid of all police. And so some people might want to defund the police, but that's redirecting funds towards mental health care, having other people who can help the public in a way that a fully armed police person doesn't have to do. And whenever I like to talk about it, I would say, you know, our house, somebody tried to break into our house a few years ago. So 
We called it in, the police came here, and a policeman came, gun in the car, AR-15. My question is, do you need to fully train the person who just goes to a house and takes a report and maybe investigates that? Does that person need to be fully trained on all weapons and have all weapons on them? Or should a small percentage of the police be specially trained, drilled all the time in firearms handling for those specific situations? Now, of course, you never know when things can happen, but if you call for one thing, it's the police. If you call for another issue, it's the police. So I think the narcissism of small differences applies to the police perfectly. People are concerned about safety, of course. They want to be protected. They want their family to be protected. And because of the polarizing media, the discussion is laughable. And honestly, some police departments are laughable too because they don't want to change. And they don't want their budgets to change. I remember growing up where the budgets for police and fire departments were actually really strapped. And now they're not. I think there's something akin to that. And it's interesting what you're proposing because as you were talking about the scenario where you'd have different levels of law enforcement training for different specific applications, I started thinking about SWAT teams and uh, tactical assault teams that are obviously specifically designed for certain very high risk of violence situations and, and only sort of those situations. But what you're describing is sort of a more tiered structure with separate levels going you know, further down the level of from a full-blown hostage situation or explosive situation down to, yeah, routine reports that don't necessarily require someone to show up in paramilitary gear and you know, weapons armed and so on and so forth. And I think that might be a fair argument. It, it's, I think what we described earlier is key that we're all after certain basic values, safety. We don't want violence. We don't want crime. We don't want people to starve. We don't want people to get sick and die. But with a finite amount of resources, we're all arguing about how best to accomplish these goals in the most effective and efficient ways, you know, whether we need socialized health care or nationalized health care, however you want to describe that, whether we need universal basic income, whether we need social safety nets, whether we need more law enforcement or less law enforcement to solve the problems of crime and violence. And, you know, we could talk about drugs, we could talk about all manner of different issues that we're wrestling with today. But it seems people have forgotten those core values that we're all after the betterment of society. And what's really struck me as sort of an interesting twist on the situation, if you will, and this was going back to 2016, I believe, in the election that Donald Trump won. I remember distinctly seeing in some news reports photographs of rallies that Trump had held, and there were attendees with T-shirts on that said something to the effect of, would rather be a Russian than a Democrat. And as we were describing earlier, you know, the, the Cold War and what used to unite us around that. And I thought to myself, that's interesting because Russia's obviously been implicated of late in election meddling and putting bounties on the heads of U.S. soldiers operating in the Middle East and all manner of other things that should be troubling to anybody. And yet we're now at a situation where it seems that some in our society are more comfortable saying that they would rather align themselves with those external forces that used to be a uniting piece than those within the same proverbial national family. So I'm not sure what that says for us, but it doesn't strike me as comforting. Well, and in any kind of political discussion, which going back to, I think our theme is uh, media bad, <laughs> when it comes to having a quality constructive discourse, is what is the purpose? As with anything, even so when students are writing papers, what is the purpose of your paper? What are you trying to convince me of? What are you trying to communicate? 
And so often people get so bogged down with their own opinion, first of all, or not supporting whatever their assertions are, that they're just talking and they're talking and they're talking and they're just saying stuff. And if you're talking to someone who agrees with you, then, oh yeah, it's easy. You know, when I talk to you, Gary, I'm like, yeah, I agree with like 98% of everything you say, I love it. <laughs> but you know, I have friends who are very different than me and it's a little more difficult, but you know what? I'm open, I listen. And at the same time, if it was a situation where they had political power, I had political power, I also know that their number one goal is to make everybody stronger, to make everybody safer. And the narcissism of our peers and our elders is just disappointing. And I say that on the national scene, and I say that because of what we see. And that's why I always tell people, don't watch the cable news. Don't watch CNN, don't watch Fox, just turn it off. Vote with your dollar and stop giving them money. I think that's why, again, I'm, I'm such a fan of, of the model that Rogan has created, or, and I don't want to necessarily give him credit for being the only one or the, or the pioneer, but he was certainly one of the first to make this a mainstream, the long-form conversation. Because, I mean, we're going to talk for the better part of an hour today before we conclude, and yet, you know, Rogan's podcast, I don't know what the average timeline is, but it's, it's usually well over two hours, sometimes over three hours, and he allocates the time that is necessary, particularly when he has guests like Brett Weinstein, who's been on several times, uh, Sam Harris, who's been on several times, Neil Tyson. I mean, all manner of philosophers and doctors, and scientists and, and politicians and media folks and celebrities. And of course, he's a comedian. So he's got, you know, buddies in comedy and actors who go on. But whatever they're talking about, there's no sense, there's no pressure to wrap it up so that we can get on to the next point in the whatever we have to do to, to cover our network ratings or whatever we're after. And um, in today's 24-hour news cycle, I, I think that that's the problem is, you know, we, we just, okay, the, you think about all the things that happened in the last four years, all of the uh, the newsworthy information. And, and I'm not just speaking about Donald Trump's presidency. I mean, there were, there's plenty to unpack there, but just everything in the world. And yet it's absolutely exhausting to try to think about, you know, everything that's that occurred. And, and I'm certain that I've forgotten about, you know, many of the most important pieces of what occurred in the last four years of my life, because you turn on the news the next day, and it's like, we're, we've moved on from that entirely. And there was never really a thorough discussion had about a lot of these issues that deserved it. And, and I think that that's what we're missing. No, and I would totally give a plug to Joe Rogan, too. He's not the most, how do you say this, graceful person. He's a comedian, and he likes to be crass. So there's that, of course. And he'll say things that will offend people, of course. But I think that blunt honesty is refreshing, at least in my view. And, and I, that was part of the inspiration for me asking permission from our university to be able to do this podcast. And not only that, but to be able to ask to do it at least for as long as we're doing it today and not like a 15 or 20 minute. That's better than a 30 second sort of soundbite. But to at least get an hour in on these episodes for us to be able to try to unpack. And, and I'm certain if we had the time and, and the bandwidth, we could sit here for four hours and talk narcissism of, of uh, small differences. Absolutely. Oh, no. You know, when I think of Joe Rogan, um, I think of a few podcasts, which are my favorite. Bernie Sanders. Mm -hmm. That was the first time I'd heard Bernie Sanders talk for more than three minutes. And it was brilliant. If anybody could listen, to, actually listen to him for an hour, you would agree with stuff he says. And you disagree. But you'd agree with the fact that he has good reasons. And it's just the fact that people won't sit there and listen to Bernie Sanders on Joe Rogan. Right. And they'll still just portray him as a commie 
which he's not. Right. You know, or, you know, the kind of socialism he might advocate for, which is definitely more Scandinavian than Venezuelan. You know, in the past, did he support, you know, Venezuela, the leader who died, uh, Chavez? Yeah, he probably supported him because at the beginning, it looked like Venezuela was doing good. And well, then as with many communist regimes, it kind of fell apart. And then, you know, another Joe Rogan guest was Tulsi Gabbard. Absolutely brilliant. What Tulsi Gabbard talks about, and because she's on the hit list, I say that metaphorically, um, of the Democratic Party is because she confronts the power and the control that the Democratic Party wants over it, their own Democrats. And so an absolutely wonderful politician in Tulsi Gabbard, whom is completely sidelined, even though she could be an advocate and someone who could really help the Democrats with centrist people. But they completely put it to the side. And then one of my other one, favorite ones was Richard Dawkins. Mm -hmm. And although I don't agree with a lot of what, with how Richard Dawkins discusses things, hearing what he talks about is important because then you realize, even if you're talking to an atheist scientist, you know what, we still have a lot in common. Yeah, It's okay. And I still like to listen to uh, Bishop Robert Barron, Catholic Bishop in LA. Again, I don't agree with everything he says, but when you, when you listen to someone like that, you have to respect and you find the commonalities between a Catholic bishop and an atheist scientist, and you realize that we're all in this together. Yeah, you, you grow through exposure to foreign ideas. And, and I think a classic example of that is um, I tend to lean left politically, admittedly. And, um, but I held the belief almost by virtue of identity politics that guns are bad because that is a left talking point. And um, I just habitually adopted this idea that, you know, I had not having been a gun owner myself prior to that point and, and just, you know, kind of held the belief that look at all the violence that's coming from this. Clearly, this is a bad thing. And Team Blue is on board with that. So, you know, this is who I am, I guess. And I was subsequently, this was years ago, exposed to Sam Harris's essay that I believe he titled The Riddle of the Gun. Uh, and then he followed that up with a podcast that was at least an hour and a half, two hours, just sort of elucidating his points on the fact that, yes, we'd like for all violence to end, including gun violence, if we could, but made an absolutely compelling and convincing argument that completely reversed my view on the situation. Now, I am a gun owner today. I'm not a uh, gun advocate or a, you know, I, I don't go hunting and I, I'm not packing AR-15s or anything to that effect. But I do see the value and the necessity for public stability and personal protection in the firearm today, at least until something that is equally effective at stopping bad people with bad motivations and without the lethal component is available. But yet, you know, until we have that, Harris made an absolutely ironclad, you know, in my opinion, bulletproof argument that explains why this is a necessary evil for the time being, at least. And so through that exposure to, you know, a contradictory idea. And, and a lot of Sam's ideas happen to be ideas that I agreed with a priori. But in this particular case, this was something that I had heard him speak about here and there. And I thought, you know, this doesn't seem to mesh with my ideology, but rather than turn the channel off and, and switch to something that, you know, again, that I'm right.com, I took the time to listen and um, I'm better for it. You know, and guns, I think is another one of those things that we could easily talk about the narcissism of small differences. Because if you exclude the extreme peripherals, everybody should have a gun. <laughs> Nobody should have a gun. Right. There's a lot of commonality. Uh, the U.S., because of its heritage, because of the Second Amendment, it's a very gun-friendly country. And that's, that's the way it is. You know, here in Arizona, 
of course, these <laughs> podcasts will age. But, you know, one of the advertisements you see against Mark Kelly, who is currently running for Senate here, is, well, Mark Kelly is totally anti-gun. Well, his wife was shot and almost killed by a shooter in Tucson, Arizona several years ago. Well, probably eight years ago now. So I'm pretty sure if anybody had that happen to their spouse, they would think about guns a little more than the theoretical that most people think about guns. Well, people should have guns. Good guys should have guns. Now, in any kind of situation, which luckily I haven't been in, where there is an active shooter, who is the active shooter? It's not like a video game where you're shooting Nazis and they're wearing a Nazi uniform and you're like, oh, that's the bad guy. Life is so much more complicated than good and bad or that's the obvious target. Right. And that's why just the gun debate, it's complicated. It's so multifaceted. It's so wrought with what I would describe as money that goes back generations that it will take something very large to change anything, or it'll just keep on going, unfortunately. Yeah, one one would have thought that would have been Sandy Hook or, you know, one of these absolute tragedies that, you know, especially with little kids that would have inspired that. But, and I should be clear with my statements earlier, I'm certainly not advocating everybody should have a gun. There are cases for it and reasons for it that I've since recognized from my exposure to these ideas, but I'm, I'm certainly not a uh, card-carrying NRA member or a big fan of the idea that, you know, we surround ourselves with these things any more than are absolutely necessary for, again, you know, the safety of ourselves and our families. And that's pretty much it, full stop, the defense of our country. And I'm not even an advocate necessarily of the Second Amendment reasons for this, but insofar as it serves a, a necessary purpose and is a necessary evil, I've come to acknowledge that. I had an interesting conversation a long time ago, and I'm probably misrepresenting this to a point because time clouds one's memory. And as I'm in a conversation with someone where we were kind of arguing about why should people be able to buy as many guns as they want? And he said, well, you like to buy guitars. And I'm like, well, yeah, I do. He's like, well, some people like to buy guns and they like to collect them. And I'm like, I don't disagree with that. You know, there's nothing more that I would want to get as a, like a, an original 1911 from 1911 or from World War One, or a Luger from World War One or World War II, those historic guns that, you know, have seen history. But at the same time, when I collect guitars, they don't kill anybody. Mm. <laughs> um, when you collect weapons, they have the potentiality to kill. And it's confusing, again, because most gun owners I know, even when they own ARs, are extremely safe. Yes, indeed. They're extremely responsible. But then when you look at the Las Vegas shooting... Nothing about that guy tipped anybody off, law-abiding citizen, until one day he cracked. And because he had an arsenal, he was able to kill dozens and dozens and wound hundreds. You would think that after Sandy Hook, as you said, and after Las Vegas, something would have changed. No. Yeah, we're stuck in this political gridlock on that subject that unfortunately, you know, is, is holding everyone back from progress that, that would make common sense, you know, in terms of the strictest barriers to gun ownership, you know, licensing and training that is on par with military exercises to make sure that people that do choose to own guns are absolutely as well-trained as they can possibly be. I mean, there's a lot we can do to improve on the status quo, but we seem not to be able to get there, at least in the current environment. And there's another comedian that I often reference in this topic because we talk about, he has a whole 15-minute bit on on guns. It's uh, Jim Jeffries, is an Australian comedian. And 
you know, he describes how in a very, very funny way, how, you know, society unfortunately can only move as fast as the slowest person. And, um, you know, in one of his bits, he talks about how most people can drive safely over the speed limit and perhaps a fair margin at that. And so without any problem, but unfortunately there's that, you know, 1% of people that, that do it unsafely and run over a family. And that's why we have speed limits, right? And so these restrictions are not necessarily for the 99%, but they're necessary to protect the 99% from the 1% who would abuse it or are not capable of uh, self-management. And I completely agree. And I would say things don't change because of narcissism because there's certain people that think they're right and because of how they talk about and their egos and their desire to keep things as is, like the can has been kicked down the road. It's been kicked down the road. Mm -hmm. Social security, all these different things. And when it comes to guns, and I, I feel bad saying this, well, first of all, it's completely unethical how guns are in this country today. Also because I've got several cops in my neighborhood and I would be stressed if I was them. You pull someone over, you don't know anything. You don't know if they have a gun, you don't know. Everybody could be carrying. There's more guns in this country than people. But no gun legislation will truly or substantially change until, and I feel terrible saying this, until somebody important, until their kid gets killed in a mass shooting. And everybody else, we're, <laughs> we're just normies. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter. And that's a horrible thing. That's the nihilist coming out of me. But unfortunately, change, like you said, what would you say? Sorry. <laughs> we can only move as fast as our slowest person. Yeah, as a result of that. We we have the auspices and, and, and are told that, you know, in a democracy, it's popular vote that counts. But unfortunately, and this is getting back to your earlier comments about, you know, corporate interests and organizational interests that the lobbying mechanisms at work, at least at the federal level, are powerful enough to circumvent what most Americans by far are uh, in favor of when it comes to safe gun legislation and so on and so forth. And so the majority interest is ignored in favor of these corporate special interests. Just one more thing, um, since, since again, we're talking about the narcissism, small difference. And I would also say that, you know, the narcissism and egotism really leads to most problems. Of course, that's a generalization that we find in politics today because most people think they know the answer and they try to control and I would have to say, once you realize you can't control things, that's when you can truly start to change things. But most politicians are on the authoritarian scale. Oh, well, we'll pass laws to help protect everybody. That makes sense. We'll pass laws because we want to control everybody. Well, then you're all being communists. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know we're running to the end of our hour. Uh, Bjorn, was there anything else that you wanted to cover before we wrap up? If you give enough time to go by, you'll realize that most of our problems are completely inconsequential. And that's my big thing about the narcissism of small differences, is just share a meal with somebody, share a drink. I recommend wine, red wine, because it chills you out. And talk, and that's it. And you'll probably solve most of your problems. I think keeping it in context is the message there. I'm reminded of a um, one of the, the, the many, many cutaways from a Family Guy episode. And Unfortunately, much of them have nothing to do with the plot, so I can't remember what episode it was, but uh, there was a cutaway where one sect of Christianity, maybe Protestants or 
evangelicals meets like a Seventh-day Adventist and they introduce each other on the streets and they say, look, I'm, I'm this kind of Christian and we believe in Jesus and the resurrection and all of the tenets of the Bible and we worship on Sundays. And the other person says all of the same things in a 30-second rant, we believe in, in Jesus and all the tenets of the Bible and we worship on Fridays. And they both look at each other and they go, what? And then they start a, <laughs> a battle there on the street side. So I, I think your, your point is well taken. And that goes straight to, um, I'll just say, Da capo of what we were talking about in this um, podcast is right at the beginning we were talking about uh, religion for breakfast and the difference between Gnostic Christians and what we now call Catholicism and Orthodox. You know, what's the big difference between Catholics and Orthodox? And even if you go to Protestantism, Lutheranism, it's, they all believe in Jesus. They all believe in a God. Some believe in the Trinity, some don't. <laughs> you throw in Islam they take out the Trinity and it's a direct relationship with God. Yet there's been centuries, millennia of warfare and murder because people disagree on how they perceive God. Over the minor details. Yes. Well, thank you for sharing your expertise and perspectives with us on these uh, topics today, Bjorn. And, and thanks for joining me on this episode of Intellectable. Thank you much. And thank you to our listeners for joining us. You can learn more about these topics and more by visiting the various APUS sponsored blogs. Be well and stay safe, everyone. For more information about our university, visit us at studyatapu.com. APU, American Public University.